The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. How you all doing? It's Sunday, the September the 24th, and you're very welcome to the Workman's Club for this live edition of the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me on stage, as opposed to in studio, from the left, we have Fia Kelly, Mary Minahan from our political staff, and Pat Leahy, our political editor. And Mary, I'm going to ask you a question first, because you're the only one who's officially on duty today. And there's been a lot of talk uh, in the news over the last week or so about rosters. And I wonder... Who does your roster, and is it a good one? Yeah, it's remarkable. I'm the only one, I think, on a non-alcoholic beverage, and I always seem to be the one working. It's, I'm sure it's a coincidence. Who, Whenever who, there's who, a big who, GAA match... Who does your roster? ...involving Dublin Pat, or who does Mary's roster? it just seems to always be me. There's a committee of elders who put that <laughs> roster together. It's yeah. always good to be nice to the political editor and to run up to Christmas to make sure you're yes. not on Stevens's Day or New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. So. Yeah, we, we, we should point out that when we do the podcast in the bowels of the Irish Times building in a room 101, uh, and I drag these people in, unlike Ryanair, we, we do actually give them water and even sometimes coffee. So, you know, we, we, we do treat our political staff else, somewhat better. No, nothing else. No, you've been known to have a beer on, on special occasions. Yeah, there's the occasional beer. Yeah. Now, Budget day. <coughs> you're all very welcome. Uh, we're not used to doing this kind of thing, so do bear with us. We've got about an hour to discuss political issues and one political subject in particular we want to dig into. <laughs> and we'll open it out to the audience or give you an opportunity to interject at some time. You might need to shout quite loud because I'm blind as a bat and it's very dark out there, so it's very difficult to see, uh, very difficult to see where people are. But um, our subject for the day uh, is a sort of a, a perennial one, an eternal one in Irish politics, Pat, and that is the duopoly, the, uh, the recurring power, the never-ending <coughs> presence of the two big political parties, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. As long back as I can remember being cognizant in any way, people were giving off about this. In the 60s and 70s, the criticism came mostly from the left, that these were these uh, blockages to the emergence of what might be called real politics, of a, having a social democracy versus a, a Christian democracy. Then in the 80s, there was a kind of criticism, and the 90s, there was a kind of criticism that it was a kind of a deep state control of, of the system, which in a way led, gave rise to the PDs. And their, their power has gone down. I mean, I was looking at, the, uh, at their share of the vote, let's say in the late 70s, it was well over 80%. Now it's probably slightly under 60%. But if you look at this weekend's Irish Times and at an article uh, by you focusing on where Leo Varadkar is taking the party or an article by Fiuk looking at where the head-to-head -head battles are going to take place between those two parties, it's still ultimately all about Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. Well, it's, it's, it's the most important dynamic in our politics at the moment, at least in electoral terms and probably in governmental terms between... Uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. I mean, you're right, it's a statement of the obvious to say that they're not as uh, popular electorally as they once were. Uh, you know, until the early 1980s, they were pretty consistently in the old, what we used to call the two and a half party system between Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, 
and Labour, they were scoring up to 90% of, uh, of the seats of the votes and of the seats in the Dáil. A bit of a decline <laughs> began in the late mid to late 1980s. There was the rise of the PDs. There was the rise to a certain extent of democratic left. <clears throat> in a sense, that wasn't at all surprising. And if you look at across Europe at these big catch-all parties, they tended to see, you tended to see a decline in other similar parties, Social Democrats in Sweden being, uh, being an, obvious, uh, an obvious case in point. But the, so, uh, and in, in a way, I think, if you look at Fianna Fáil, the great triumph of Bertie Ahern, electorally, was to mask the natural decline of the biggest catch-all party uh, uh, the natural decline. I mean, if you think of it in this way, you know, when we were growing up, particularly in uh, in rural Ireland, it made sense to talk of Fianna Fáil families, Fianna Gael families. That is true to a certain extent nowadays, but it makes much less sense um, as levels of education and levels of affluence increased. Voters became less rooted, <coughs> particularly in urban areas. Votes their votes were up for sale, in a way. And Bertie Hearn's genius was he twigged this and, his, uh, and he gave effect to that by, in an electoral sense, by essentially buying those votes to hold on to them. Of course, we subsequently turned out he was buying them, uh, he was buying them with our money. But so, so when the great collapse of Fianna Fáil came, I think what you saw was not just a reaction to the... Uh, uh, to, to the economic crash of uh, 2008, this was in the 2011 election, but in a way, all that natural decline in the big catch-all, uh, big catch-all parties vote that was occurring throughout the <coughs> 70s, the 80s, the 90s was just masked by other factors, particularly by Bertie Ahern. But if you turn that around now and look at where we are now, in a way, the surprising thing is that there seems to have been a, 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 a more than a stabilization in the vote. Fianna Fáil have come back fairly clearly and consistently in opinion polls. Fianna Gael are roughly about where they always have been. The 2011, if you look at the electoral history, 2011 result when Fianna Gael won 36, 37% of the... Uh, of the vote and what seventy seven seventy eight odd seats that was the uh, uh, that that was the outlier. It was a freak for for, right. uh, for Fianna Gael because mm. of particular circumstances. They're now more or less at their historical mean. Fianna Fáil are ten to fifteen percent below what their traditional level of support would have been. Do you but think that's there's still any quite it, remarkable? Do you think there's any prospect that they could return? towards that level, back up towards the high 30s? I find it difficult to see. The voters have not forgotten the crash, and while blame is not as acutely focused on Fianna Fáil as it once was, there's still a fair share of it to go about. And anyway, uh, just to go back to what I was saying a minute ago about that natural decline of the big party, that has already taken place. Those votes have become... Uh, uh, those votes have become promiscuous in a way. The voters mm. have become uh, promiscuous and it's difficult to see any party, I think, re returning to the stage where it consistently gets 40, 40 plus uh, percent <laughs> in elections. The other thing that contributes to that continuing dominance, I think, of the, of the big parties is the fracturing of the alternative. And we can talk about that. Mary? Bit, I suppose. 
I, I agree with Pat that I think the electorate is becoming increasingly unsentimental. You just have to look at the treatment of the Labour Party in the last election. You know, a 100-year-old party just completely devastated by people who felt betrayed by that party's over-promising before the election. Um, you know, decades come and go and, uh, you know, election after election can kind of feel like Groundhog Day. And when you meet the new boss, he's pretty much the same as the old boss in many regards. But, um, you know, it, I do wonder, are, are we in a kind of a holding pattern that it, that will have to end at some stage? And I, you know, I think between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, there is a codependency. You might remember Brian Hayes, who's now an MEP, wrote a, a curious article for a rival publication uh, after the last general election and he, or the last but one general election, sorry, when Fianna Fáil was brought low and he said, you know, Ireland still needs Fianna Fáil. I think he meant Fine Gael still needs Fianna Fáil <laughs> because as I say, there is this kind of a codependency thing and that's not like, new though that's that kind of probably goes back to the origins yeah. of the parties i think if you look at the posters a lot of their posters are always about keep the other lot out oh yeah and like i don't think Fine Gael will ever reach that kind of catch-all peak mm. that Fianna Fáil reached you know i mean Fine Gael is a catch-all party in the sense that it represents everyone from you know rich lawyers to rich farmers and you know a few other <laughs> you know there are there are some different people in there like Catherine Byrne is an obvious <laughs> example a Dublin TD who's certainly wouldn't be in, in either of those camps. But, uh, you know, there is this Middle Ireland keeps voting these parties in. But, you know, Middle Ireland, you talked about when we were growing up, you know, that wasn't today or yesterday, Pat. Like, so Speak Middle Ireland is getting older. And Middle Ireland, you know, there's going to be natural wastage and Middle Ireland's view, uh, I think, is going to change. But as I say, I do think the electorate is becoming more and more unsentimental in the way that it votes. And we only need to look north on our own island to see uh, how, you know, the parties um, that were the standard bearers for unionism and nationalism for decades, the UUP and the SDLP, how they were just very quickly really shunted to the periphery of politics uh, and the, you know, the outliers were brought in, Sinn mm. Féin and DUP now are at the centre and will be there for a very, very long time to come. So, you know, uh, I, I suppose... What, Clive James talks about the the revolt of the pendulum. That's a, like it's a phrase that's come from Australian politics, where they talk about how there's constant swings between liberal and labour. That's exactly what it is. You know, a, a revolt of a pendulum. It's a very sort of it's not a radical thing. It's a very steady swing from one side to the other. But and I'm not even sure what that what that swing years. is, Fiac and. Uh, given, given all our references to age, I should say, I think I'm the oldest one here, and I definitely remember definitely. elections. Thank you, thank you, Pat. <laughs> all the way back, back certainly to, to, to the 70s. But <clears throat> for, the, for this two-party duopoly ever to end, as, which has always been the dream of, mm. of many commentators, including some in the Irish Times, mentioning no names. One's initials would be F.O., for example. <laughs> um, and uh, for that to happen, it always seemed to me one of those parties had to completely collapse. Um, and either get wrapped into the other or disappear entirely. And sometimes people thought that was going to happen. People mm. said that was going to happen to Fine Gael after 2002, and it didn't. Yeah. People said it was going to happen to Fianna Fáil after t 2011, and it didn't. So they, there's something well, of resilience about yeah, them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not just to collapse. It's either to collapse or coalesce. So, mm. you know, the great hope of people like, for example, Sinn Féin after the last election was that they, by staying out of any government formation notions, by promulgating this idea of a government of the left, which they probably knew wasn't going to happen, that they would be able to force Fianna Fáil to adopt the junior uh, position in a Fine Gael-led coalition, which would be the same thing as you say, forcing them together, thus opening up the opposition for the left, a Sinn Féin-led left. 
Fianna Fáil resisted that, Michal Martins. This entire construct we have now is an attempt to resist that. It was Michal Martins' brainchild, confidence, supply. Didn't want to leave the opposition open to that because he knew that that would probably be the long-term you know, end of his party if he was to go in as a junior partner with Fine Gael. So they have self-consciously resisted that. There has been no desire to coalesce. I think the funny thing is they both know that. Mary has touched on this, that this idea of a Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil coalition, I think is as far off as, as it ever was because they both know that in order for both of them to thrive and survive, one needs to be a big, big party in, in government, the other needs to be the big party in opposition. And if you speak to people in both parties, the idea of coalition, particularly in some of the Fianna Fáil side, is just not a runner because they know, first of all, that were they the junior partner, it would be probably they would have to take a lot of things they didn't like. There'd probably be a diminution of their identity. But they also know that culturally it wouldn't wash as well. So they know that this duopoly has to survive for both of them to thrive. There's a really obvious question here, which always comes up when we talk about this. If, if somebody landed from Mars and, and walked in this door and saw this discussion, they'd say, what is the difference between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael? What would the answer be now in 2017? Well, let me pivot slightly on that. We'll get back to that because it's a longer, more developed point. But I think a more important point is not what we think the difference is, hmm. but it's what they think the differences are. And I remember during that long period last year between the election and the formation of the government when uh, there was this on-off talks between all the parties, between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, which culminated and all sorts of contacts, backdoor and otherwise, were going on, and culminated in Enda Kenny's offer of a grand coalition, which Micheál Martin, um, which Micheál Martin, of course, rejected it. And I, I went on a kind of a, a, a tour of the grassroots of Fianna Fáil at that stage. I went all over the country and spoke to people at, uh, at a local <laughs> level for their views, particularly on this point, which was uh, a live issue at the time. And what struck me was not so much, you know, that there was a difference between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael in policy terms, because of course that would be very difficult to find. But it's that the differences were more cultural and they found their expression uh, above all, in the sense that they believed there were differences. And they thought those differences were important. Mm. And that, I think, is not going to go away anytime soon. Can you explain to me what they thought those differences were, though? They, their view of Fianna Fáil was that it was essentially a centre-left party. And their view of Fine Gael was that it was a centre-right party. And, you know, you could rightly interrogate both those views, uh, I, I think, to the point of destruction, at least in some cases. But it was important to the party well, can I, can members. I just, just and, and they believed it Can I just press truly. you on that a little bit? Because that seems to me to be not necessarily a cultural point, but almost like an ideological point. But we often, when we talk about these parties, we talk about them in terms of <laughs> culture or heritage or DNA or social background and all those kinds of elements. Whereas what you've described really is what be the difference between a social democratic party and a Christian democratic party. But, but so are they That's actually, what they would like to see the difference I mean, between the two of us. Is Fianna Fáil in its own conception of itself Whatever about is, yeah, is the, on the his things they talk about. If you talk about talk to Fianna Fallers about the 
history of their party, the heritage of the party, the things that they talk about of which they are proudest uh, of, uh, in, re- in relation to Fianna Fáil's achievements in government tend to be things like housing, education. It's not, they don't talk about the economic boom. They don't talk about the North. They talk about they don't those talk about things. They, they don't, ta- they don't they talk do, about yeah, the last economic do. turnaround. No, they do, they, they do. do, but okay. they talk about using the fruits mm-hmm. of economic uh, uh, of economic growth for essentially social projects. And it's quite striking, I think, when you think of the the record of Fianna Fáil in government, particularly over the last thirty years. There's quite a disconnect between those sort of between the achievements of those governments in some respects mm-hmm. and uh, and the uh, the sense that the organization or much of the organization uh, uh, has of itself. Yeah, I think when people are talking about politics around their kitchen table, you know, they're not discussing whether or not the party they've always voted for is Christian Democrat or Social Democrat. Mm. Like, everyone in the room knows this from listening to their own, maybe, parents or grandparents talk. You know, Fianna Fáil has been the party that, in their view, in their supporters' view, represented the little man Mm. and there was lots of work for men when Fianna Fáil was in power. And education is the thing that they can actually rightly be proud of and what what they did there in past decades. Whereas a Fine Gael family would talk about, you know, honesty, decent values and so on. Um, lack of involvement in tribunals. Is that bell for me? It's <laughs> uh, quite nice, but keep yeah. The idea of riding in on a white horse uh, mm. to solve the problems that had been created when Fianna Fáil were in power. So, you know, each party, I suppose, and its supporters repeatedly tells themselves these what might be myths really myths over and over again. Yeah. Any kind of community, I suppose. My favourite favorite answer to that particular question that you posed is what is the difference between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael? I put the same question to someone senior in Fianna Fáil this time last year. I don't know if the audience is familiar with two TDs. One is Kate O'Connell, the TD for Dublin Bay South, who's a Fine Gaeler. Another is a TD for Cork South West for Fianna Fáil called Margaret Murphy O'Mahony, who's a rural, quite rural TD, you know. Mm -hmm. She basically is, you know, a bit she's a typical country Fianna Fáil today. And I said, what is the difference between your two parties? And this person said, I'll tell you the difference. Kate O'Connell and Margaret Murphy O'Mahony, that's it. It's cultural. It's nothing more. And they feel that quite strongly themselves, mm-hmm. that they are perhaps, Fianna Fáil would see itself as a kind of more earthy party. You know? And Kate O'Connell, for those who don't know her, represents a middle-class Dublin constituency, isn't originally from Dublin herself, mm. and is a successful businesswoman as mm. well. Yeah, yeah. She, she runs a chain of pharmacies with her husband. Margaret Murphy O'Mahony, I think, is more from a farming background, was quoted in Miriam Lord's columns yesterday as saying that she wasn't for, uh, she wasn't a women's liberator or, or something like that, but that's the way it was defined yeah, but at the me. same time her husband stays at home and exactly. marries the kids. Like, so, but it was know. interesting that that was the reference point. Yeah, yeah. That was the reference point that they almost define themselves against that yeah. caricature they have of Fine Gael. Which yeah. is kind of the well to do. Which, which Enda Kelly doesn't person. fit, and many other Fine Gael rural TDs don't fit, do they? No, but that's the, that's the story that Fine, Gael, Fine Fall tell themselves <coughs> about the differences between the two of them. And, like, does, you know, would the Andrews family fit that caricature or stereotype? No. Jim, Oca- Jim O'Callaghan. Jim O'Callaghan. Yeah, shares no, yeah. it's, it's the tales they tell yeah. each other to magnify the differences that aren't really there. Yeah. And one of the ones that came back to me recently was this spat about cutting the VAT rate for builders to get a house building going, you know, Fine Gael, mock indignation, you know, yeah. horror and woe, how dare we do this? Pascal Dunhill and Leo Varadkar publicly saying we're not going to do it, when the fact of the matter is both of those men were part of a negotiating team last year that tabled the same proposal, the exact same proposal. So there is no difference policy-wise between the two of them. It's the tale they tell themselves 
as Mary says, Fine Gael tells itself the story of we are the people who came in after Fianna Fáil ruined the economy. Fianna Fáil tells itself the story, we are more in connection with the little man, with the communities. And this, could, this does go back to the roots of both parties, doesn't it, Pat? Like yeah, you can go back into the 1920s yes. and see these exact things as yeah, well. Yeah, these, these, these are real differences. You know, as Felix says, you can, you can argue about the extent to which they make a difference in policy terms or the, to which they find expression in policy uh, terms when the two parties are, uh, are in government. And of course, of course, a Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael coalition is possible in policy terms, as we again points out. Uh, but you know whether that is uh, you know whether you know whether that is a, a particular peculiarity to Ireland. Uh, I'm uh, I'm 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 not sure. I think it's that it possibly has more to do with uh, the way that centrist politics is. Uh, has been under pressure mm. from the extremes, emboldened by uh, by the economic crash, and uh, and I suppose you know, I mean, it's happened in other European well, countries I, as well. I, maybe, I can't think, maybe you can, of of a similar example of two centrist parties which are quite close together in their policy on most of the key issues that affect people, um, never entering a political alliance together. Well, I mean, they're in a sort of political alliance mm. now. I suppose that's yeah. the first time, yeah. You know? Apart from maybe from the Tala strategy at the end of the 1980s. Yeah, yeah which was a formal, formalised This thing. is formalised yeah. and it gives an absolute lie to the idea that they could never go into government on policy terms together because they have sure. a document agreed between the pair of them, which is a very loose policy framework, but it's still a policy framework. Yeah. We're going to have a row, we're going to have a sham row in the next few weeks over whether it's going to be USC cuts or raising the threshold of the income tax plan. But the idea that they couldn't do coalition uh, on policy basis is a nonsense. It's the cultural differences between the two parties. Yeah. But po policy hard. has only ever been a part of the political debate in Ireland. It's only okay. part of the political mm. identification. Well, then, can we talk a bit more about the culture? Because accepting that the, you know, the, the true Irish... TD from a rural constituency represents Fianna Fáil in one, one of these models and somebody from a middle class Dublin constituency rep represents the other. I mean, everybody has a bit of this in their DNA. I have quite a lot of this in their DNA, you know, of, of either one side or the other or an interesting mix of the two. So, for example, full confession, full con disclosure, my <laughs> DNA is very Fine Gael on both sides of my family. And that comes Presumably then. they checked that out before they let you into the Irish Times. <laughs> yes, they did, I did. I had to go through a rigorous, uh, rigorous test. Um, and, 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 and those things run quite deep in all kinds of ways. You know, you book against them when you're young and you mm -hmm. come to terms with them or continue to book against them for the rest of your life. But on everything from the, the national question to the position of the country, those kinds of issues, which traditionally... Mary did yeah. form part of the divide between the two parties. But I think the outside world is butting in now on Little Ireland, yeah. you know. Uh, I, I've heard uh, this was a theme of Enda Kenny's, the whole thing about the centre must hold. Um, I, I went to The Hague actually in April of this year and heard him give a speech there. And, you know, it, it actually, it, it's, I'm not suggesting for a minute he wrote his own speeches, right? But uh, it certainly, you know, it, it, it contained more intellectual heft than he is usually given credit for. And he talked about how the centre was under threat 
really right across the developed world because of the rise of these popular fringes and how you know the centrist parties kind of in his view had to come together and get back to themselves and he talked about getting back to a radical centrism now whatever that is I don't know but it's certainly an interesting concept it's and kind it, of Emmanuel Macron I presume well yeah I think it, it uh, spoke of how you know Ireland is is no longer this you know little island mm. that has its own you know just its own parties its own way of thinking it's it, we're in a global world now and it's got these outside threats as they're perceived by some, not by others, the rise of the popular, the populist uh, fringe. But just what Fake referred to there about the builder's proposal recently, it, I think it explains why people who aren't supporters of these big parties are so disillusioned with political rhetoric. And you go back to 2011, the democratic revolution that Enda Kenny talked about, it was anything but. It was mm. simply a matter of... Uh, the electorate, I think, falling out of love with Fianna Fáil rather than, you know, falling head over heels for Fine Gael at that time. So, mm. you know, to describe it as a democratic revolution The funny thing was that, like, you wrong. know, th there were people in Fine Gael who entertained the idea at that time that they would become the catch-all party, as Pat refers to, that sure. they were going to assume the position that Fianna Fáil traditionally held of the natural party of government, which would have, you know, kind of a lot of benefits for its supporters in terms of appointments. You know, they would be the people appointing judges, etc., etc., etc. But they've regressed from that now under their new leader because their new leader specifically said, that is not the model we want to follow. He specifically said in his campaign, if you stand for everything, you stand for nothing. So they've, you know, after that brief flirtation with being Fianna Fáil Nua, they've decided to go back and be something similar to what they and were. Pat, you, but you, I think you, talk about, you talk about exactly that this week in the Irish Times, about this reshaping, which is now, in your words, becoming clearer now, uh, this yeah. aspirational republic? or Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I think there will be a, a harder and sharper edge, if an edge can be both harder and sharper. Yes, perhaps. definitely. It's a question of physics, I mm. suppose, but uh, to, to Fine Gael's appeal. And I think Leo Varadkar was very clear during the Fine Gael election campaign that this is what he was offering. You know, it was a more sharply defined centre-right offering. He talked uh, in economic terms. He talked famously of the people who get up early in the morning. We know what that means. Uh, I was focusing in yesterday's column on a couple of lines that he had yeah. omitted from his speech. Yeah, tell us speech. about that. Uh, this was a speech that uh, Taoiseach was giving at the IBEC dinner uh, on Thursday night. And uh, in his prepared script, which um, was uh, uh, was given out to the, the media under embargo, as would normally be the case, there were a number of lines which, I don't know, can you remember exactly yeah, what the lines it, it, were? It talked, it, about, it talked about your government will not... It does not support a culture, a culture of dependency. Of, that's right, a culture of dependency. Uh, essentially, I suppose, talking about welfare dependency. And a couple of lines in the section of the speech um, about, uh, about the Republic of Opportunity the and the culture of, of aspiration. And people who feel about. that they pay yeah. everything, pay for everything, but get nothing in return. Now, yeah. I was talking now, myself now, and Pat now, were what chatting you said, about it. What you said in your I was very taken by, by, by what, what you said about this in your oh, piece. thank you. Among, yeah, it, some, it sometimes happens. Um, <laughs> that, I thought your own uh, piece was excellent as well. <laughs> thanks very much. Um, what do you think of Fiex? Not so impressed by Fiex. We'll come to that later. 
um, that you were talking about this was perhaps he realised this was not the appropriate forum to be delivering essentially 700 versions of Russell Carroll Kelly's dad sitting around in their black tie. Uh, this was not the time to be telling them, that we, you know, we don't believe in, you know, extending the welfare state. It wouldn't have looked good. Yeah, no, no, the, the, um, the, point, the point I made was that taking out the lines out of the speech was evident, ev evidence of the smart political judgment of not wanting to talk about welfare dependency in front of a bunch, uh, of, bunch of guys in black rich, tie. A bunch of rich people. Yes, uh, yeah. where uh, wealth creators, I'm sure. Rich people. But putting them in the speech in the first place w was a more important act than taking them out, if you know what I mean, because it's evidence of deliberation on this point and evidence, I suspect, of actually what he, where he wants to go politically, mm. the edge he wants to give Fine Gael politically. And I think that, you know, will be, I think that will be one of the most e evident, obvious dynamics of our politics, Mary, electorally, think, uh, certainly over the next Do you while. think that'll work? Well, it's very clear that Varadkar is appealing to a niche now. He's not appealing to this. He's, he doesn't want to go down this it's road. Big, of, it's a big niche. Yeah, though. it's a yeah. powerful niche. That's mm. the important thing. It's a powerful niche. So while it's small in numbers, it's big in influence. Uh, and it's not that small in numbers. Well, I mean, we're talking about like the middle class. people who pay. You see, this is the thing. He talks constantly about the middle class. Yeah. I think it's yeah. something that Tony Blair, uh, when he was beginning, uh, touched on this. This aspiration. People are aspirational. You know whether or not they're technically middle class, they think of themselves as middle class and they certainly want their children to be middle yeah. class. So I think that is what he's trying to, uh, that those are the kind of buttons he's trying to press, if you like. You know, it couldn't be more different from the Simon Coveney message. You know, during the campaign, Simon Coveney, the leadership campaign for Fine Gael, Simon Coveney talked about, you know, the man in the sleeping bag on Grafton Street. Leif Radker doesn't concern no himself with him. this person, you know. Hmm. Um, Simon Coveney talked about overtures to the Green Party. Uh, that sounded nice and fluffy. Varadkar shot it down in flames, you know, mm -hmm. saying the Greens want to tax everything. They're very, they, you know, they make your life more expensive, basically. So, you know, you can see where Varadkar's going. But is there a possibility? It's an economic message. It's an economic, message, message, it's an you economic message, but is there a possibility, rather than Fix saying it's, it's, it's appealing to a niche or, or a smaller niche, is it maybe an attempt to expand Fine Gael's I think so, niche? It is, it is. In that if you're talking about Pat in his piece... Uh, was talking about the way the Reagan Democrats in the 1980s mm. and that that and the you know Essex man who, mm. the, who Margaret Thatcher captured in the 1980s as well and how Tony Blair and Bill Clinton in turn managed to kind of annex some of that vote mm. back again. So if this this element of the voting population, which as you say is aspirational, which regards itself as middle class, mm. um, which is not particularly taken by messages of social solidarity, or at least it's not the first item on their list, that that's, you know, that, that's an opportunity for expansion well, he, maybe he, for Finnegan. He clearly sees it and he clearly believes the time is right now for this message. The time is right to say there are people out there who've paid through their teeth for everything in the last seven or eight years and they haven't been given a break. Like again, another manifestation of that in the last week was leaders' questions in the Dáil the other day and Brandon Howland got up and pressed him on this idea of you know increasing the uh, or increasing the, the limit at which people are the, the the entry level for the higher tax bond, hmm. and Howland specifically said you know there are people who pay who are on lower incomes and they should be brought up out of the tax bracket entirely, and Enda Kenny did pay lip service to that over the last few budgets. There was a move to kind of you know 
have a certain cohort of people who, who don't pay any tax, really. You know? There are a large number of Take people, people out of USC. Th- like the USC. A third, a third of income. Yeah, third of the income USC earners, was designed yeah. to catch everybody. Hmm. And what has been done over the last years is to have people, I think it's below 13 or 14,000, who don't pay any USC. He quite specifically said, no, that's not what we're doing. Everybody should pay something. And my attitude is that the people in the middle are the ones that need the break. It was so specific. It could not be clear that this is where he is going and where he wants to go. And it was a complete repudiation of almost everybody in the doll around him. Everybody. And I think that's where Fianna Fáil will be happier with him as a leader than they were with Simon Coveney because they can go, look at that guy. He's Norman Tebbit. He's up on your bike. That's who you're dealing and with. And we've now. heard a bit of that about Tory boys and all that kind of stuff, Pat, already, haven't we? There's going to be plenty of Oh, yeah, yeah, and I think that's, that will be the assault on Veranker. It will be he's a right-wing maniac, basically, is what you'll be... In Lycra. What, what, what you will be told. <laughs> yeah. to a frightening thought. And, yeah. Um, but uh, that will be the line of attack uh, on him. And I, I think that Veranker himself probably knows the political danger of that because to be called right wing in Ireland is uh, not a description it's a it's a form of political insult and it is so because the why, dispos- why, why is that but just to make the, uh, make okay. the point I, I, I think that he uh, he's also making the judgment the political judgment that very many of the sort of voters we talked about at the start of the conversation who had been de-anchored from their traditional home, be it in Fianna Fáil or in Labour, uh, an aspirational upper middle class, uh, upper working class, lower middle class type of uh, type of voter who is increasingly transactional in his political choices, uh, perhaps motivated more by economic arguments. They're the voters that Varadkar is trying to target. Uh, Mary's slight caricature earlier of the rich lawyers and rich farmers who already vote for Fine Gael, they're not the target. He's not trying to look after those people because they have no other political home. He's trying to appeal, he's trying to expand the appeal of Fine Gael at the other end, and he's trying to do that through an economic message. Okay, point taken, but I want to come back to my question because I've got the lead mic here, um, which is, <clears throat> why is it that nobody in Ireland, in a significant party, is, is willing or happy to characterise themselves as, even apart from right-wing, economically conservative seems to be, you know, not acceptable. So they kind of shimmy around it. I mean, it's one of the striking things about Leo Varadkar is he's one of the first leaders of a main political party who seems to be at least slightly willing to do that. He's not afraid of being called uh, uh, an economic conservative. Mm. I think he might prefer other labels, but I don't think he's, uh, yeah, I don't think he's afraid of it. Yeah. wouldn't have been. I haven't heard him speak about it recently. I mean, he has evolved. There's no doubt about that. I'll, 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 I'll tell, a, tell, tell a story about that point. When, when Varadkar first broke on the political scene, a, um, uh, a, a senior, uh, uh, anyway, it doesn't matter, somebody told me this, and he had had a row. Very senior. No, no, no. He had had a row in studio with, um, uh, with Jack O'Connor. I mean, they had a debate, and I think they'd, it carried on outside uh, a little bit anyway, and, and Jack being, you know, um, uh, you know, quite very, you know, decent, politically serious uh, type, you know, got personal, uh, shouldn't have got personal, you know, um, we'll meet for a cup of coffee and and sort it out, you know. So they met for a cup of coffee anyway, and uh, Jack told him, said, you know, um, I I might have, you know, gone a bit over the top now, but I have have to tell you, you know, uh, you may not realise, but I regard uh, Fine Gael as as a right-wing party nowadays. 
And Veracker looks at me and said, Jack, I know. That's why I joined them. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing about Veracker is that he's always believed in this but we're only seeing it now for the first time in a long number of years. We saw it right at the start. Though, we saw it at the start. Yeah. It dipped when he became Minister for Transport, Minister for Health, Minister for mm. Social Protection, and suddenly we're seeing it again. And I always suspected that, that when he was let define himself on his own terms, that this is what it would be. It hasn't been as blunt as the guy who stood up and said, you know, you're Gareth Fitzgerald, you're triple national debt, blah, blah, blah. But it's there, and it's there, and it's there now on offer to people. And I think it's, it is, you're right, you, it is the first time that it has been such a clear offering to the Irish public because, let's face it, any time, you know, any connotations of vaguely conservative right-wingism was kind of rejected by the Irish people. They always like fluffy centrism, really. Like, look at the successful slogan of the last election in Ireland for all. What the hell does that mean? But people liked it. They like that idea of themselves as caring. Now, Pat has pointed out in the past, they also like their taxes cut, but they like the perception of being caring. I think that this is going to be a real test of whether the crisis years have changed to such an extent that he will find an audience for what he's saying. How does that fit with then that rhetoric which you referred to, like the, 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 the speech in Brussels about the centre and the importance of holding the centre? Uh, or Pascal Donoghue, I think, has written a couple of times about this as well. Is Fine Gael as a repository of kind of the centre, which in a way goes back to the sort of the original Fine, Fine Gael common and ill mm. conception of itself, doesn't it, uh, in one way? But then if you have this sharper, more overtly conservative ideology, which was always there in Fine Gael as well, where does that put it up to Fianna Fáil? I don't hear Fianna Fáil talking about the need to conserve the centre in the well, same way. Well, they do, if you go back to last year's budget, the standout moment of the budget was when Pascal Dunne made that speech and for the umpteen time, you know, use Yates, the centre will hold. And immediately Michael McGrath popped up on the opposition bench and said the exact same thing, the centre will hold. Mm. The problem with this thing about the centre is it's self-defined to suit the big two, that this is a construct and the way they talk about the centre is entirely selfish because they mean us guys, you guys, and maybe the Greens, and Labour, and the Sock Dems, but nobody else. And it's entirely selfish, and I think that's where they will fall down, because if you say, you know, okay, Sinn Féin, you're not allowed in, because we say you're not allowed in, and what does that do in the long term? It breeds resentment, it breeds disaffection amongst a certain group of people who may vote for Sinn Féin. I think that is the biggest danger to what they call the centre. I mean, it's interesting now that the parties that FAKE has named, that division used to be between parties that were prepared to go into coalition, right, and parties who weren't. Hmm. But the big change this year has been Sinn Féin. I mean, look, uh, Sinn Féin would have always said it was prepared to go into coalition, but it always wanted to be the lead partner. And now it has said it's uh, not happy enough, but it will take being the junior partner well, in a, yeah, in a coalition. Well, it's moving towards. Yeah. It's moving mm. towards. So that. that's the big change there, I think. Mm. And what does that mean for the for the dynamic? If we, we've moved from the two-and-a-half party system with Labour, Labour essentially has been supplanted by Sinn Féin. Yeah, Sinn Féin being bigger, really, than Labour was for most of its history in terms of its electoral you know, power at the moment, and the two large parties being a bit smaller. Where does that take them all into the, into, into the next election and beyond, Pat? Well, I think a certain amount of that will depend on, you know, on the disposition of forces, be, of, of possible coalitions amongst the forces beforehand. Now, I think, I don't think there is any doubt but that Fianna Fáil will go into that election having utterly ruled out any possibility of coalition with Sinn Féin after the election. And that essentially takes Sinn Féin out of the coalition game. Now, there are elements, and Fika's written a fair bit about this, there are elements within Fianna Fáil who would form a coalition with, uh, with, Fianna Gael, or with 
with Sinn Féin, but I think that uh, the leadership will rule them out, and I think everybody will have no choice but to toe the line, uh, but, but to toe the line on it, which leaves Sinn Féin in, uh, in in the situation of not having a route to government after uh, after the next election. Fiac, you've been pretty good at plumbing the differences within the Fianna Fáil front bench on that. Yeah, um, yeah, I think Pat's right. I think that the fact that the leadership have so strongly set their face against it that it's not going to happen. Um, I think there are a large number of people within Fianna Fáil who, you know, in talking to a lot of them, either off record or on record, the vast majority of people you speak to in that party accept that it has to happen at some stage. They see it more as a 10-year possibility rather than an immediate one. There are people who would do it after the next election if they wanted to, but we've just seen in recent weeks Michal Martin has smacked his... <laughs> he has slapped down members of his parliamentary party. He've said it publicly. They don't want to do it, but I think there is an acceptance within the party they will have to do it at some stage, just not now. And I think Pat is entirely correct. Michal Martin will not do it. He has staked his reputation, I think, on it. And they are so conscious of the fact that if they even entertain that idea, the middle class vote will just flee to Varadkar. Even if Jerry Adams isn't the leader anymore? Yes. That's the big change, I actually, because he's... A lot of people in Fianna Fáil and in other parties would talk about, um, you know wouldn't go into coalition with Sinn Féin, but under a new leader, it would be a different scenario. But the big change for me in Micheál Martin's rhetoric recently has been that he's even talked about if Mary Lou Macdonald was in charge, which is the, the great expectation, I suppose, that she takes over. Even with her, he wouldn't countenance it because, in his view, everything Jerry Adams says she will say too and everything he does she'll do I, I suppose it's going to be fascinating to see if uh, Jerry Adams has launched a, a very strong attack on Varadkar in recent days talking about uh, you know him advocating Thatcherism with a fresh lick of paint you know you can you can see where he's coming from on that and it's just to see does that stick or not because like Varadkar's he's he, you know, he's got a bounce, he's new, he's fresh, but he's dragging a lot of weight at the moment. I mean, from sort of legacy issues, if you want to call them that, from his predecessor, you know, Fine Gael is in the throes of a total humiliation on water charges, an absolute embarrassment where it's had to utterly climb down and give people their money back. I mean, it's mortifying for Owen Murphy, the, the minister in charge there. You know, Fredker has Northern Ireland, he's got uh, Brexit, the mother of all problems, you know, and, and yet he's he's trying to portray himself. It's very hard to pin him down as a, as a political personality. You know, people, I think, even still have this notion that he's liberal on certain things, and, you know, that is definitely not the case on matters such as abortion, where it can be hard to sort of exactly catch his thinking on mm. issues like that. But yet he fancies himself as, as a bit of a Macron-type figure, you know, at the head of this he traditional conservative uh, big he, party. He actually tweeted a, a, a cure, he had a tweet the evening, I remember he saying he's more style and substance, but like, you know, nothing is done by accident. And he tweeted a picture the other evening of, oh, so happy to get this drawing of myself from school child, whatever, in Donegal, and he tweeted he'd framed this picture on his hall table. But if you look below, there is a Macron president banner that he clearly robbed from some rally. And if that was, um, that was an accident, you know, I leave my hat that he was tweeting that, like, you know. <laughs> 
we're probably talking more about Finnegal because Finnegal are in power and there's obviously more to talk about. I, I have one question, I don't know which of you would want to take it, about Fianna Fáil. Fianna Fáil used to be conceived of, particularly by itself, as being more than just a political party, as being a national movement of some sort, that in some sense it embodied the nation in some kind of a way. And, and in some ways I think Sinn Féin perhaps thinks of itself a little bit like that in its own way now. But is that, that part of Fianna Fáil, is that just gone? Was that killed by Hahi and Reynolds and Ahern and everything that's <sighs> happened? I, I, I don't think it's completely dead, but for it to be overt, to, you know, for it to make an appearance in speeches and things like that, at Ordeshina, that I, I think a certain amount of hubris is necessary uh, for that to take place. And Fianna Fáil is a long way from, uh, from hubris. Now. I think of its, the party because of its experience. Yeah, I think yeah. the party would need to be, you know, you know, you know, is that sense completely dead in Fianna Fáil? I don't, I don't think so. I think in their their innermost thoughts, hmm. the Fianna Fáil men and women maybe feel that, but they are uh, either you know too canny or too scared to let the rest of us see it because. In, 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 in the clear light of uh, in the clear light of day, uh, it's it's kind of preposterous. Well, I think really. of that clip of Conor Lenehan uh, after the last the, the we're back baby thing. You know, there is that. But that's, that's, he, uh, he, he's back himself. It's not inaccurate, the, you know. Yeah. <laughs> if you read the Mail on Sunday this morning, he's back with a bang himself. He wants to run for the European Parliament. Whether Michal Martin wants him to run now is a separate matter. Yeah. I want to open it up to the audience in a sec and you'll probably have to shout because I can't really see a thing out there but I have one last question which I think always has to go with this subject is this all complete bullshit? Are these oh, yeah, parties, obviously. <laughs> yeah. these parties yeah. basically they're the same thing, they're the same people they've been running the country with the deep state since 1923 handing yeah. things over, forwards and backs and forwards and backs and nothing really changes that much between them Well, you know it is a source of great, uh, uh, great wonder to some people and great frustration to many other people that voters keep voting for these <laughs> parties, but that is the voters' right. Mm. And uh, the one thing you can say that while it, you know, while there are certainly aspects of the strength of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael that make our politics very, very resistant to change, and often that is a bad thing. There are also aspects of it which are, uh, which are national strengths in a way when looked at from a particular perspective. Say, for instance, I was making this point that the, the, the budget, uh, Times budget event that we had the other morning, one of the things that multinationals like about this country is that they can be more or less assured that economic policy will not change. Governments change at every election. Look back at the successive elections, even you know, through the years of, of, of the Bertian hegemony. The, con the exact constitution of the governments changed at uh, every election. So governments change, but policy, particularly economic policy, tends not to. And you hear the guys in the Department of Finance talking about the certainty of our corporation tax rate and that, uh, and that sort of thing. Now. There are downsides to that as well. Of course there are obvious downsides, but it also gives us, uh, gives us some uh, advantages. And ultimately, I don't know what the other guys think, but uh, you know, these are the people that, these are the parties, 
These are the candidates mm -hmm. that voters the keep we voting deserve for. Because we elected them. Well, we keep yeah. voting for them, but mm. I, maybe this is a slightly geeky point, but I do wonder if there's anything to be thought of our, our actual voting system. You know, we have the, the very quirky uh, PRSTV and multi-seat constituencies, which I, I love, but uh, is shared. the love is only shared by the Maltese, the Australian mm. Senate, and I think Northern Ireland as well when they, when they have an assembly. Um, but, you know, we have this real Irish thing of voting negatively and I, I chastise myself I do this myself you know How do you I mean? think Doing the candidate well? you loathe most you give oh, your yeah. lowest number lowest 17 absolutely to, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean it, it's really a negative it, way it, it's a hyper representative your system democratic right but it is. yeah you know which has strengths as well as uh, as well yeah but as it, you know it pays to vote all the way down the ballot paper and you know that maximizes the effectiveness of of your <laughs> of your vote yes. but you know grudges can be held for decades yeah. and longer in ireland and i do wonder if that sort of if perpetuates you're coming, if you're coming from the view that having these two centrist parties is a good thing uh, you know continuity of policy as Pat has spoken about, is a good thing, then the electoral system had saved that because in any other electoral system, the result of Fianna Fáil suffered in 2011, they would have been wiped out. They were saved by PRSTV. So in a way, it, it is hyper, hyper clientelistic, but we like it, so we keep it, and it saved the system we have. And it seems that we like the system we and have. And does it militate against the emergence of parties who might replace or supplant the, the two largest parties now? Does it make it more difficult for some party to come in and sweep the boards, let's say with a, with a you know, 50 un, largely unknown candidates just on the basis that it taps into some mood of anger or whatever it might be? I, no, 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 I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not sure it does. I mean, our system of party funding mitigates mm. against state funding for political parties and elected candidates certainly mitigates against new, uh, new, new parties breaking through. But the electoral system, it, it takes... It, seven or eight thousand votes sure. will probably get you elected mm -hmm. in, uh, in, in any constituency. In most constituencies, seven or eight thousand votes will get you elected. That's not a great amount of people to meet, of hands to shake, of promises to make, of backs to clap. It's not. It's not that difficult to break into the Irish electoral system. Look at all, look at the, the, the wave of independence that have arrived since, uh, t uh, since 2011. The reason that there hasn't been a Macron wave or, or, uh, or indeed the a rise Le Pen, or a, a Corbyn or, or a, a Trump or something like mm. that is because people haven't voted for them. Mm. Right. Anybody out there want to holler? Okay, far ahead. Um, one quick question. Are Sinn Féin actually playing a cute game by saying they'd go in as a minority party, knowing well that Michal Martin will tell them where to go and Fine Gael would, just wouldn't countenance as a fighter. Um, I don't think so, actually. I think there is a view within Fianna Fáil, particularly, that they are playing a cute game, that they're doing the same thing they did the last time, which is trying to force Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil together. But they realised they made a mistake the last time. As Pat says, they were out of the game so early. They want to be in the game this time. But my own view is that it's not, because I was struck in recent months when speaking to people in Sinn Féin that they said this, I was kind of like, where has this come from? You know, you guys, it was quite, quite clear the last time, two election strategy, you were even putting yourself forward as the lead party of a left-wing alliance, which included the PBP, the AA. And they said our members wanted. They said, like, you know, one, I was particularly struck one time, a TD said, I had a delegation in from Leinster House from my constituency. These were old 
men effectively who looked at this TD and said, you know, will be will we be in government before I die? I think it is genuine. I don't think it's just a tactic. I think they do want to be in government, but nobody wants to play ball with them, so they look like they're going to be stuck outside for some time. I mean, but I do think it will be. A ne- I think I think I think that the system can get away with it once more. Um, and after that, y- y- you cannot ignore a party that has thirty seats. You just can't. If they want to be in government, you know, I think the system has to. This election, okay, no, it's it's probably not going to happen. But the election after that, that it's a different ball game if they're of the same position that they appear to be moving in now. And I think many people in Fianna Fáil, in particular, accept that. In particular, accept that. In in, in some respects, it's just a recognition that the strategy the last time didn't come off. The strategy the last time was predicated on the notion that uh, there would only that the only possible stable government, a correct reading of the numbers, actually, that the only possible majority stable government was Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. What they didn't reckon on, and they, they assumed, Sinn Féin assumed that that would mean the two parties, the two big parties, would go into coalition, leaving them to dominate uh, the uh, the opposition to build uh, a left wing, uh, to build a left wing uh, uh, umbrella grouping that could take power after the next election. The reading of the numbers was correct. What they hadn't reckoned for was the confidence and supply ag- uh, agreement, and uh, in, in some respects, abandoning that now, which they haven't formally done, but they're on their way. Uh, they're on their way to do is simply uh, a recognition that that tactic didn't work. It wasn't so much a, 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 a principle that they would never go into government with one of these conservative parties. It was simply a political tactic or political strategy to allow them to dominate uh, the opposition, but it didn't come off. Yeah, I think Sinn Féin is different from like the small parties like People Before, people before Profit and Solidarity and so on who are anti-coalition. They'll tell you that, like they're anti-coalition. Like Sinn Féin, and it's interesting that you said that that, that was coming from their membership, you know, that way of thinking. I mean, if they didn't respond to that, they put themselves in a really dangerous place politically because people don't want to keep voting for a party that's going to be in permanent opposition. You know, you can't keep marching your people up to the top of the hill and then saying, all right, we'll just go over to the opposition benches again and again and again. So I think Sinn Féin really does, as it frequently says, want to be in power on both sides of the island, but that therein is the problem for them, I think, because you know people will look north and say, well, what is going on there? You can't, you can't quite get it together there at the moment. I That's why what's going on in Sinn Féin at the moment is so interesting, because they're actually having to plot out not their strategy, not just for the next election, but for, for the, one the one after that. And that, of course, it's not just Adams that, uh, that will be gone by then, but that entire generation of leaders that grew up in the conflict and who were defined by the conflict and the subsequent uh, and the subsequent peace process, there's a generational uh, transfer that is happening there, and they're having to figure out. They're doing a series of meetings in the autumn on a 10-year strategy. The bits of it we'll see will be will be the the coalition strategy, I think, and the uh, and the Adams, uh, you know, the Adams timetable for setting for for stepping down. But there's a whole lot of other stuff going on as well. Because of all your detailed and very informative answers, we only have time for one more question. If somebody does have one out there. Anybody else? Uh, yes. Yes, uh, go ahead. Hi. Um, I moved to Ireland from Germany last year, so I'm kind of acquainting myself to Irish society and politics. What I can see, though, um, which a lot of politicians seem to be ignoring and hoping that it doesn't come up, is the issue of Irish 
unification, I, I hear a slow drumbeat coming um, from Sinn Féin. They haven't said it really loud so far, but I feel it's coming in the next two, three, four, five years. And I get the feeling that all the established parties are hoping that it's not going to come up and hoping that it's going to go away. I see Sinn Féin gradually pushing for this. And I don't know. My question is, do you think that they really have any plans? Mary, I'm gonna, you're, the, you're the dairy woman, uh, the person who's most acquaintance with the border. I'm going to ask you to answer that. Yeah, I mean, I suppose Sinn Féin pushing for Irish unity wouldn't be a new development, but um, uh, I think Brexit has changed everything. Uh, you know, what uh, the leaders of Sinn Féin have tried to achieve through many, many years of violent and non-violent political intervention, uh, you know, everything it could be just turned on its head. Now, I think, I do actually think a united Ireland is closer than it's been for a very, very long time at the moment. And ironically, uh, Sinn Féin has, I suppose, the voters of Kent to thank for it. Yeah, I I don't think it's as immediate as Sinn Féin would like. You hear them speak about, we want a referendum within five years. Privately, they'll say that's not realistic. They know themselves it's not realistic. They believe they're looking at more of a 10, 15-year time frame. Sorry, they may want a referendum, but they may want a referendum with no expectation that it will succeed. That's a possibility, but I don't think, I think, I think they, they, if they want it, they want it to succeed, because if they hold one and it doesn't succeed, you're not going to back. But the tradition of referendums for independence in other areas of the world, including Canada and in the mm. past, Catalonia and in Scotland, is first time out, you don't make it, but you build on that. But it takes it off the agenda for another generation. And I don't think, I think when they want it, they want it to succeed, but they're not expecting it to happen when in five years. They, they say realistically 10 years, maybe longer. Um, Fianna Fáil's policy, they have a white paper on this, they're going to finalise the committee, because they want the United Ireland as well, but they are afraid to, as you say, say it explicitly because they believe the situation in Northern Ireland is so delicate now. Mm. They also believe that, not that it's closer with Brexit, that Brexit has changed the landscape, and they don't see Brexit as the Trojan horse by which you will achieve in a United Ireland. They are merely restating their traditional aims. Pat, the clock is ticking on us, but a last thought I think, on that. I think, Fianna, uh, I think uh, Sinn Féin wants to talk about um, United Ireland all the time. I don't believe that it believes it to be a realistic prospect um, in the immediate future. I mean, a couple of steps have to happen before. You, you probably have to have a Labour government uh, in the UK and therefore a Labour Secretary of State, uh, because under the Good Friday Agreement, there can only be a referendum if the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland thinks that there's a realistic prospect of success. You need to have the politics, the North-South politics, the relations between North and South uh, completely transformed by, uh, by harsh economic consequences of Brexit. All that is imaginable, but not likely in the foreseeable future. The final hurdle then, that uh, if all those ducks are in a row, the final hurdle is you need uh, uh, 50% plus one in the north, Hmm. and you need 50% plus one in the south. And I think delighted and all as we are to have so many fine representatives of, uh, mm. of the six counties uh, with us. I think that's a much bigger ask right now uh, than some people uh, appear to think. I think that would be very interesting. Very interesting. The opinion polls would certainly, would certainly be very interesting. We do have to leave it there. Thanks very much to Fiak, to Mary and to Pat. Thanks to the Dublin Podcast Festival, which I think is a fantastic new initiative and congratulations to them for it. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon. I was part of a radio discussion on Friday 
about gender in radio where it was suggested that producers only make the tea. Declan very rarely makes tea for me, but the podcast definitely wouldn't happen without him. And he's a very it's a crucial part of that sort of the, the backroom way in which podcasts get put, put together, I know, is being covered in the festival, and it's extremely important. Uh, if you're interested in listening to Inside Politics, you can always find us on irishtimes.com slash insidepolitics, or indeed you can find us on iTunes and all the other places where you expect to find all that kind of stuff. And do drop me a line at hlinhan at irishtimes.com if you want to get in touch with any ideas. We're always grateful for them, or you can find us all on Twitter. But until the next time, and we'll be back on Wednesday in Room 101 in the Irish Times, thanks for coming along and thanks for listening.